Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. Well, it is our uh, our very first service back after a major uh, holiday, and uh, everyone knows what that means. That uh, all across our beautiful country, churches are stuck with their uh, their youth pastors uh, speaking this weekend. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna have some fun. Uh, true story, actually. The other uh, the other day, I actually had someone come up to me for the first time and say, uh, "Matt, you're actually one of my, my favorite speaker at, at Seacoast, between Doyle and Cody, and obviously, you know me." And I said, uh, thanks, Mom. I, uh, I appreciate that and the encouragement. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, on a more serious note, um, I have the honor of wrapping up our series through the book of Romans. We have taken five weeks now, this being week number five, to study the words of the Apostle Paul um, through the book of Romans. And um, I'm excited to wrap it up with you guys. But really, before we uh, head into where I, I want to go with you guys, I got a quick question I just want you guys to turn and discuss. And here's the question. It's, uh, what's the best advice you've ever been given before, right? So think of teachers and coaches and mentors and, and parents, right? Over however many years you've been alive, What's some of the best advice you've ever been given? Turn to some folks around you for 15 or 30 seconds. Ready, set, go. Bring it on up. Bring it on up. Today, 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 we're looking at the Therefore chapter in the Bible written by a man named Paul. And I want to reintroduce us really quick to the author of the book of Romans, a man named Paul. And the reason I want to do so is because I think he probably gives us some of the best advice humanly possible other than Jesus Christ. And just a few facts about him uh, so that we can meet him uh, in an appropriate way is number one, he uh, was born to Jewish parents in a town called Taurus, which is in the modern day Southeast Turkey. Um, when he was born, his parents gave him the Hebrew name Shaul. We know Saul. It's probably after the very first is, uh, king that Israel had, a man named King Saul, and it translates to the one who hears, and obviously the one who hears from God. However, most Christians, we know him by a different name. We were actually known by his Roman name, Paulus, or Paul. And uh, the, the name means in English, little or short. God knows why he had picked that, but he did. And there's uh, one ancient source that tells us what his physical appearance maybe could have looked like. And it describes him as short, bow-legged, balding with a unibrow. Not that attractive of a dude, definitely not the Brad Pitt of his day, maybe even more like the Danny DeVito of his day, maybe even the Cody Surratt of his... <laughs> He's not here. <laughs> so this little man, he had, a, <laughs> he had a large impact. And what we know of Saul of Tarsus was that he was a very religious man, but also simultaneously very educated. Some uh, scholars believe that he could have been maybe the most intelligent person that walked the planet um, uh, other than Jesus Christ during the lifetime of both of these men. And he studied Judaism at one of the most famous Jewish rabbis, a contemporary of Jesus and obviously Paul. Um, and uh, this contemporary rabbi was, let's say, very anti-Christian. He's famous for saying this, uh, this prayer, let there be no hope. And I remind you, this is a prayer. Let there be no hope to those who apostatize, meaning leave the true religion, Judaism. And let these heretics, the Christians, however many there be, all perish and be killed in a moment. Now, what we know of Paul, well, in his early days, he took these words to heart. Because you know his story, you know that he was kind of like the Christian terrorist of his day. He made it his life's mission literally to exterminate Christianity. In fact, he's credited with creating the very first and inciting the very first mob that killed the very first Christian, a man named Stephen, the very first martyr of Christianity. It was in the first century that it costed you something to follow Jesus. 
in that century was most likely your life, right? In the book of Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says to pick up your cross daily and walk. And what that meant then is literally pick up the 250-pound T-bar and probably head off to your, your grave now where you're going to be killed and crucified. Today we think, I don't know, what does it look like to deny myself? I'd deny myself in and out for lunch and maybe sugar, right? But it meant something pretty intense back then. Today I think we could probably agree, though, where we are living in a, in a society that's becoming increasingly hostile towards the biblical faith and worldview, right? And I think now we're going to start experiencing the cost of discipleship now. Now, in America, it's probably not going to be your life. But it could come in the form of your livelihood or being rejected from others. You know, no, you're no longer included. You're excluded from things that you were previously included in. Or you may be mocked or just scorned for what you believe. But what we know about Paul is he was on a mission. And the first few chapters of Acts tell us about his mission to end Christianity, or as it was known um, back in the way, followers of the way, um, before we were given uh, the term Christians in Acts 11:26. Followers of the way. And so if you go just back a few uh, uh, chapters in the book of Acts, you'll Go to Acts chapter 9, where we see that Jesus kind of interrupts Paul's narrative. Jesus' post-resurrection, post-ascension into heaven, blinds Paul on his road to Damascus, literally knocking him off his donkey. And when you're 5'9 like me, that's knocking you off your high horse, right? And ultimately, Jesus, uh, he reveals himself to Paul. And Paul realizes that it was his zealousness for God, it was his passion, his zeal for God that was causing him to go to war with God and to wage war on God's people. But you fast forward just a few chapters into Paul's life, and we realize he writes most of the New Testament, and God uses Paul as an instrument to share his message. Not even the original disciples like Thaddeus and Bartholomew, those people got to do. Outside of Jesus, he is the most significant person in the New Testament, writing 13 out of the 27 New Testament books. 14 if you include the book of Hebrews, which many scholars believe that he wrote as well. All right, you're thinking... Why, why did I just spend all that time talking about that? Because the conversion of Paul, I think, is one of the greatest evidences that Jesus is God. I mean, there's no other reason that a man like Paul would start worshiping Jesus. Think of this, right? He was a wealthy man. He abandoned it all. He was high in the religious order called the Pharisee, had social prestige, abandoned it. And eventually we, we learned that he even lost his life. Scripture tells us that because of his faith in Jesus Christ, he was flogged a total of five times, beaten with a, to with a bat three times, and was even stoned one time. And for the high schoolers here, that means he was hit with rocks and nothing else, okay? <laughs> Paul, he was uh, he's passionate, right? He was devoted. Paul was committed to telling you and to telling us about a God who saves. You ask, Paul, why were you so passionate? Because Paul knows this, that if you follow Jesus, living on earth is the closest to hell you're ever going to get. However, he knows that if you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, this is the closest to heaven that you're ever going to get. And so, Paul is passionate. He's committed, devoted to telling you, telling us about a God that saves. And so today, I want to talk about a God who saves. And I want to talk to you about what our rightful response should be to this incredible, awe-inspiring, and perfect God. But to do that, I think we need to kind of pause. We need to go back to what Doyle and, and Cody have been spending the last four weeks teaching us about Romans chapters 1 through 11. Isn't, we'll go through, let's say, the uh, rearview mirror to see what we've learned here to go through the windshield of where I want to go today. It begins in Romans chapter 1. And Cody kicked off our series teaching us that Romans chapter 1 teaches the world or tells us about the world that it's in disorder and it's self-destructing at a really quick rate as God is turning people over to their natural sinful desires. And then Romans chapter 3, it's not just the world uh, 
Every, everything in the world and everyone individually in the world is in disorder and is self-destructing. In the book of Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, no, there's not one that's righteous. Righteousness, Cody defined well. He said it's in a right relationship with God and others. You are not born. Your natural default is not to be in a right standing with God. Your natural default is not heaven. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, it says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed it. We've all missed the mark. But then three chapters later in Romans chapter 6, it teaches us the reason for this disorder, this chaos in the world that is around us, this self-destruction. And it calls this reason sin. And it informs us that sin, it causes what? Death. Death, there's three types of death described in Scripture. There's physical death. That's your body from your soul. And if you've ever lost somebody, a family member, a friend, or maybe even just an animal, you know that there's something about death that just feels unnatural. In Scripture it says, all creation eagerly awaits and groans for the day in which death will be no more. There's something about it. You just know it. This is not how it's supposed to be. And it wasn't how it was supposed to be in the book of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. It says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. It was not God's original plan for you not experience this. Second type of death in Scripture is spiritual death. This is for people this side of heaven or hell. That they are void of this Holy Spirit. That they have no um, John 3, spiritual rebirth. And then finally, the worst type of death is eternal death. This is where your soul is separate from, your, from, from its creator, God, forever and ever and ever. Death is a separation of things that ought not to be separated. That's why death and sin is such a problem. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you learn what? We learn that God can, God is willing to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. What does Romans 6, 23 say? It says, for the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in John, um, he, he, he reaffirms the same reality. In John um, chapter, or sorry, Romans chapter 7 and 8, we learn this beautiful reality. That you, I, broken, fallen, disordered sinner, can be adopted, grafted into, invited into a group that God calls his family. You can no longer be a child of wrath, but you can be a child of God. And then Romans chapters 9 and 10 and 11 is this struggle between predestination and free will. And Cody's smarter than I am, and so I'll let him do that. But we also learn that there's an ongoing purpose for the Jewish people that God has. And so all of that, all that brings us to Romans chapter 12, the therefore chapter in the Bible. And whenever you come to a chapter in the Bible that begins with therefore, you got to pause. you got to ask an important question. Here's the question. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, the therefore is therefore a pause, a reminder. Call it a mirror to cause us to go back into those 11 chapters we just spoke about to realize all that God has done for you. And is it not true in your life, at least it is in mine, that oftentimes when I'm struggling with something, God causes me to go back into the rearview mirror to see how he's been providing for me, showing up, performing a miracle, being present, whatever it may be that he is with me, to give me the courage to continue to go forward and forward and forward. It comes to my mind now, actually, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 9, I'll talk about that in a second, but in the book of Deuteronomy itself, and in fact, on the totality of Scripture, did you know that the word remember is found more prevalent? Than the words trust, faith, and belief. You would think this whole Jesus following thing, trust, faith, believe, pretty important words. But the word remember is more found throughout the pages of Scripture than both of those words. Because often God is calling us to go to develop faith by looking backwards to go forward. I'll be more specific for you. There's 433 verses in the book of Romans. 300 and those 15 are all about God telling, are about Paul telling us about what God has done in our lives and through his son Jesus Christ. Why? why? Why is Paul doing all this, spending all this time? Because he knows this, until you are mindful of God's goodness, mindful of his mercy for you, mindful of how deeply he actually loves you, you'll never develop the pure motivation to do what he's going to ask us to do in the chapter we're in today. And so all of that, all of that brings us to Romans chapter 12, and it begins with now. 
Now, here is your response to this reality. Here's your part. Here's your duty. Here's what your conduct should look like. I love the way that the um, NIV says it. It says, this then is how you should live. I want to pause for a moment because I, whenever we jump into the pages of Scripture and it informs us of how we should live, I want us to know it's not a, a Simon says kind of thing where instead of Simon, we got Jesus. No, the reason in Scripture God tells us how to live is not for an entrance exam into heaven or to teeter the teeter-totter in your favor towards God. No, but as John 10 teaches us, God is for your joy. John 10, 10, for the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. But Jesus said, I've come to give life and I give it abundantly. And so the reason that there are commands in Scripture that inform us how we should live and what we should do is because God wants you to experience life and life abundantly. And here's what Jesus knows. And here's what Jesus wants you and I to know is that life abundantly is only going to be found in doing life the Creator's way. That life abundantly is only ever going to be found in doing life the Creator's way. And because God loves you, He tells you and I how to find life through Him and do life in such a way that makes it more joy-filled and helps you escape the landmines of leading yourself by yourself. And, And so today... As we hear Paul teach us how to live, know it's because he knows that God, God is for your joy and that you're, no, you're not saved by living a certain way, but rather because God has been so kind to you, because God has been so good to you, God has been so merciful to you, it should cause you and I to want to live a certain way. Our faithful response should be to live in a certain way, in a way that brings honor and glory to his name. So with all of that, go with me into the book of Romans chapter uh, 12. You turn there with me. If not, it'll be up on the Sky Bible. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore. We just discovered what the therefore is there for. It continues and says, brothers, by the highlight mercies of God, because that's our reason. The mercy that Paul had in mind here is about God becoming a man, right? The whole God in a bod kind of reality, right? The, the truth that God added humanity to his pre-existing divinity in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 Christmases ago, where he was born in Bethlehem in a cold and dark cave, growing up at the age of 30, beginning a three-year tenure of ministry that changed the landscape of the world. I mean, think of it, literally cracking the calendar in a half to B.C. before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. He was then charged on a trumped-up case, and they're flogging and eventually capital punishment under the Romans encouraged by the Jewish high-ruling court called the Sanhedrin. He then died and then came back to life, resurrected three days later as a public vindication that he is who he said he was, that he could actually deliver on the promise of giving you eternal life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believed him would not perish but an everlasting and eternal life, that the, that the, that the promises of Scripture that he goes to prepare a place for you one day, that he can give you eternal life and abundant life here today, that that check can cash because he is who he said that he is. That's the mercy Paul's talking about here. Why is Paul so, why is he so, he wants us to know this? Because he wants us to pause. He wants us to reflect that the God of the universe didn't just cross a room, a continent, an ocean, a planet to reach out to a broken world. He crossed from heaven and to earth. And became one of us, all to reconcile us back to the Father because he loves you. And he loves me that much. That's the mercy that Paul's talking about here. This is what God has done this then and now is how you should live. Go with me back into verse 1. It says this. To present. You know, the word present here, it, 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 let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Imagine like if I was uh, going to give a, a gift to my wife. And um, I, I, you know, I got it and I was like, all right, here you go. Here's your gift. Mer. You know, like... She's going to be like, well, now I don't want it, right? Like, it's not done joyfully. The idea present here is in light of what God has done joyfully, and we're going to learn what, joyfully give. Like me on, on the day I proposed, I'm joyfully in this moment giving her a gift. 
to present your bodies as a, and it says living sacrifice. That is like an oxymoronic word, right? It doesn't, like deafening silence. That guy is pretty ugly. Like what, like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense, right? Like pretty, the other day I was sitting at a coffee shop and uh, being nosy, like I always am. And um, uh, sitting next to these two older ladies and uh, one of them says, thank God, I lean in. I'm an atheist. I lean back. <laughs> I'm like, that, the more I thought about it, I was going to tap her on the shoulder and be like, you're also not that smart of an atheist. Or maybe you're not even an atheist at all. But I kept my mouth shut because mama taught me right. But what's with the phrase, right, a living sacrifice? Well, the idea comes from the temple where a priest would sacrifice an animal for the sins of himself, the family, and in the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, for all of Israel, if it was the high priest in that case. The priest would first lay hands on this animal, um, fill its heartbeat, and watch Feel its lungs fill with air and decompress and fill and to identify with this animal. And this is done for a little while. He would then take a knife, and I know it's gory, but this is what happened. He would take the life of this animal and wait for all of its blood to spill out. He would then take the animal and bring it to the altar dead and place it on the altar as a way of saying, I know God that sin, it causes death. We now, what the, we now know what that means. And in your graciousness, God, you have allowed this animal to die instead of me and for me. And so the priest, he would then light the altar on fire, burning the carcass of the animal as a burnt offering. See, God allowed animal sacrifices in the Old Testament as a way of demonstrating to mankind that your sin is a problem and it demands and always causes death. Wherever it is, relational death, physical death, emotional death, um, uh, financial death, always it causes death. Now, what's with the importance of the phrase a living sacrifice? Well, remember earlier I told you that the sacrifice was dead, then brought to the altar altar. So the idea of a living sacrifice is really all about the idea of active surrenderance. With it carries the idea of staying on the altar because let's be real, like living sacrifices, they tend to wiggle off the altar. And if you're anything like me, well, you probably tend to wiggle off the altar pretty often too. Living outside of the will that God has for you as you grab on to things he's constantly telling you, hey, let go of that. See, the first century Jews, they knew firsthand what sacrifices were all about. And so to say that they needed to make themselves a living sacrifice was a striking image for two reasons. Number one, the sacrifice is living because it's brought alive to the altar, not dead. Two, the sacrifice is living because it stays alive. In the original Greek, it's an ongoing posture of surrenderance. See, the difference between a living sacrifice and a, and a dead sacrifice is the dead one, let's be real, can't do anything. The living one has to make the conscious decision to stay on the altar or to get off it. So he asks you a question. All right, Matt. What, is, what does this practically look like to live like a living sacrifice? Well, the following verse explains it, but let me just give you a little context first or make it simple. It simply means to surrender, open-handed and saying, God, I give you all that I am for all that you are. In the book of Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, and in the book of Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, Jesus says the exact same thing. Whenever Jesus says the exact same thing in the same book, pay attention. He says that those that try to save their lives will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake, they will find it. In other words, like, let go and let God. But let's be real, like, the illustration comes to my mind now, like, of um, the Lord of the Rings and, like, Schmeagle. You know, he's, like, constantly like, holding on to his precious. And that's kind of how we are, right? Holding on to the very thing that's leading to our captivity or our destruction or our death. The, the other day, I was uh, searching the uh, World Wide Web, and I came across a, um, a video on how to catch monkeys. And uh, funny enough, monkeys are some of the most intelligent animals on the planet. But you can actually trap and ensnare them in some of the most unsophisticated and silliest, really, ways. So I'm going to teach you how to catch a monkey because that's what you came to church for. Two steps. Number one, uh, if you, all you need to catch a monkey is a coconut and a hole in the ground just big enough for the coconut, or, yeah, for the coconut to land. Step two, 
When the, uh, when the monkey comes along, they'll reach their hand into the hole to get the coconut, but they can't get the coconut back out because their closed fist is around it. And remember, the hole is only big enough for the coconut, not the fruit or coconut and their closed hand. And what they've discovered is that the monkey is greedy and won't let go of their prize, will not let go of their prize. And when the hunter approaches, the monkey tries even harder and harder and harder and harder. But because they won't let go, they'll be captured and not free. Literally, there's video, you can go home and watch this, of like hunters walking over like a tarp and just like putting it on. And it's like walking away. It's like, that's supposed to be a smart animal. Are you kidding me? Like what? Just, just, just let go. Your freedom is this easy. Aren't we a lot like this? Let me maybe ask it to you this way. What's the thing that you're holding on to that leads to your enslavement? What's the thing that you're holding on to that is inhibiting you from living like a living sacrifice? I'll make it clear. What's your coconut? Maybe for you it's money. And you got a lot of it. Was it profit a man to gain the world yet forfeit his soul? You know, God doesn't mind you having money. He just minds your money having you. I can't give it up. Maybe for you it's a substance. Maybe for you it's a relationship. Right now you're here and you're living with each other. You're not married. You're actively sleeping with each other and you're not married. And you just can't give this person up. You can't end this relationship. Or we can't continue to walk in disobedience and expect God's blessing and provision over our lives in the future. And you're sitting here like, but I, I, this person means everything to me. I, I can't trust that God would bless me. I, I, it's a faith issue. Maybe for you it's greed. Maybe for you it's an addiction. Maybe for you it's just a way of life. Maybe for you it's the pursuit of happiness. Maybe for you it's just the desire to be God over your life, to be autonomous. What is Paul? What does Jesus want us to know here? That true freedom is only found in a life wholly and completely surrendered to God. Why? Because life and life abundantly is only ever going to be found in doing life the Creator's way, living like a living sacrifice. He continues in verses 1 and 2, and he says this. This is wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't close your hand around what the world says is the prize. I love the imagery in the NIV. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. It's one, don't let the world squeeze, pressure, mold you into its mold. Paul here is talking about the model of everything you and I have ever learned about life. <laughs> and I've learned over the years that if you want to experience lasting change, one that is more than momentary, <laughs> we have to change our pattern. You have to change your model of living. We need to replace the old unhealthy pattern we've learned by society and culture with a new one modeled after our relationship with Christ and the new understanding that all that you are is to be in a posture of living like a living sacrifice. I'll give you a silly example here. Raise your hand really quick if you've ever been to a baseball game. Keep your hands down. So years ago, back when I was in elementary school, I think I was in sixth grade, my, my friend Philip invited me to my very first baseball game. Growing up, to be honest with you, even until today, I never grew up really watching sports. And, I, and to this day, I don't think I've ever even gone through an entire, whether it be in person or on TV, an entire baseball game. So I was fascinated, you know, by observing the people at the baseball game. You know, some people were like decked out in the colors. Some of the guys had their shirts off and were painted. I was like, this is wild. I'm really into this. And um, when I noticed when the umpire, when the, the umpire made a, a good call or a bad call, they booed, they cheered, right? Here's the interesting question. How did you learn how to behave at a baseball game? Right? Did someone sit you down and tell you, okay, when they do this, you do that. When you do that, they do the X, Y, or Z. No, of course not. You learned how you should behave by the behavior of those directly around you. In other words, there was a predetermined script on how to behave, what to believe, and how to determine what was important by the people that you were surrounded by. See, the same is true with our lives. We're all born in a way in a world that has a way of, let's call it, a governance, right? We learn how to do life by social cues, the media, interactions with other people, and yeah, even our education. In other words, it's a pattern that predates you and I. 
This pattern teaches us what to hold value in, how you should bring up your kids, what to invest in, and what to expect in life. And Paul is pleading. He's getting on his hands and knees. He's urging, pleading with us not to follow the pattern of the world because it's a scam. Don't store up your treasures here on earth where rust and moth can destroy, but store up your treasures in heaven. That's what Jesus said, right? He knows it's a scam. He knows it's you investing your entire retirement portfolio in Enron in the year 2000, in the stock market or the housing market in 2007. It's a sinking ship. It's storing everything up on Titanic, right? It's, it's a scam. It's a coconut that leads to your enslavement. It's nuts. That's what, he's trying to, that's what he's trying to get us to see. And so you're asking another good question. Matt, how do we, how do we learn not to follow, conform to the pattern of this world? He gives us our answer in verse 2. But be transformed. Transform is the same word that we use in English for the process of metamorphosis. It's the process of a caterpillar, you know, going into a cocoon and becoming a biological goop and then coming out a beautiful monarch and butterfly, right? In other words, be completely, be wholly made new by Jesus Christ, like 1 Corinthians, the new creation. He is going to teach us how to do this in a moment. But I want to maybe pause because you, you may have a moment in your life in which you realize that the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and you realize how he was transforming you into that 1 Corinthians, into something that was new. And that's a moment to be celebrated in the book of uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says that God works for the good for those who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. But the context is verse 29, to conform you into the image of his son. In other words, the context there is that God is willing to use the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it to conform you, to transform you into the image of his son, into something that is new. And it was the first time I noticed this change in, in my life. It was my, uh, my first week as a senior in high school at Cypress High. And I uh, was going out to my truck um, after my seventh, sixth period, uh, to get my bag for wrestling practice. And as I'm headed out there, I uh, open my, my door, and I notice that my passenger window is shattered in. And I notice that my dash is ripped apart, my radio stolen, my iPod, my bag, wrestling bag, and a plethora of other things are stolen. And let's just say in high school, um, I had an anger problem. Right? I could get zero to 60 quicker than a Ferrari, right? And I wasn't always good with words, and so I learned to vent that in different ways, I guess we would say. So noticing all of this, I, I just sit in the seat covered in glass, and I just put my head on my steering wheel. And in this moment, I felt deep sorrow, like almost grief that this person would feel that this is, that they would have to take something that wasn't theirs. And my grief, my sorrow was over this reality. What kind of relationship does this person have with their parents, with their mom, with their dad? What kind of relationship does this person have with God? If this is what's going on in their life now, what will 5, 10, 15, 20 years look like for this person? God, could you save this person? Could you, could you, could you convict this person? After praying for that person, I, I shut the... Um, the door, and I'm headed off to the uh, office to talk to the administrators to tell them what happened. And in doing so, I ran into a bunch of my friends, and hey, aren't you going to wrestling practice? Why are you headed to the office? And I said, well, my, my truck got broken into, and I, you know, I showed a story with them. And I'll never forget what they asked me. They said, are you going to find the person, and let's say, handle it? And I told them, no, I've, I have no intentions of finding the person. And it was in this moment that I realized I had no hate in my heart that was so easy to tap into. I had no bitterness. I had no anger. I'll never forget the look on their faces. They looked at me like, what happened to that guy? Like, what? And look, this isn't like a, hey, kind of look at me kind of story, right? A few years later, I was, you know, commuting to Biola where I went to school. And as people were cutting me off, I was late to class. I realized how much more I still need to be transformed, right? So it's an ongoing, <laughs> ongoing process here, right? I'm working process. And I realized in this moment this, that faith doesn't always mean that God is going to change your situations and circumstances. However, it does mean that he will change you in the midst of your circumstances and situations. So what's our job here? Your job, my job, our job, it's to behold unto Christ. And his job is to do the transforming us into his likeness. Continue to go with me into verse 2. 
But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good, acceptable, and perfect. Oh, I love this. Predating the modern field of psychology, Paul is wise enough, intelligent enough, smart enough to tell us the first thing that you need to do if you're going to try to become like Christ is you need to allow him to transform your mind. Why? Because our minds flow your words. Your words turn into your actions. Your actions turn into your habits. Your habits turn into your character. Your mind flows your words, your words into your actions, your actions into your habits, your habits, they form your character. And so he says, look, if you're going to start somewhere on this process of sanctification, big churchy term, Romans 8, 29, becoming like Christ, you need to start first where you think. Why? Because the only way God can radically transform you into something that is new, a new person, is by first renewing your mind. So look, here's, here's what this all means for, for us today. Look, I think we could agree we live in a sinful world. We're going to be taught things and given value to certain things that are going to create tension with what our faith prescribes for us and how we should live. This is why elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, um, Paul wrote, we are to take every thought captive to obey God. So you ask a good question. All right, Matt, what does it look like for me to practically love God with our minds, right? Well, this is actually a pretty important thing, by the way. So if you think of uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 9, um, or actually Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 9, it's called the Shema. This was like what Israel did. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the book of Matthew chapter 22, what does Jesus do? He deduces 625 Old Testament Levitical laws and, and, and laws into love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is an important thing. So what does it look like for you and I to love God with our minds? Two things, I'll make it easy for us. Number one, we're to pursue truth. Look, the mind was designed to discover truth. This is why God created us with the ability to deeply think about things in more than 140 characters and not just be a couch potato. See, God wants us to understand the truth of his word and in doing so, the world that is around us by being in his word. Look, in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, for God's word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of, bo- uh, of spirit and soul, bone and marrow, discerning the intentions and thoughts of the heart. God's word is alive. You will never, ever, 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 ever understand God through the filter of your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, for the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick, for whom can understand it? You will understand God through the filter of his word. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, for God's word is useful, and it ends with, for training you and I up in righteousness, learning, practically living, being in a right relationship with God. Number two is you've got to stop filling your mind with garbage. Look, our mind is an incredible organ. There's over 100 billion neurons. There are more neurons in your brain than there are stars in the universe. And what this means is that our brain is neuroplastic. It has the capacity to continue to rewire itself, anatomically speaking, by the stimulus in which you give it. And if you continue to fill your mind with things that aren't of God, garbage. Eventually you'll believe things about the world, God, and others that just simply aren't true. This is why Jesus says in the book of Mark chapter 4, verse 24, and Luke chapter 8, verse 18, literally says, pay attention to what you hear. Why would Jesus say something like that? Because he knows eventually these things will impact our, your brain. And because our brains are like computers, they will download what we see, hear, and do. And the reality is because our brain changes, what we fill our mind with will affect our thoughts, our actions, our habit, and eventually our character. See, when you have a mind that's dedicated to the world and all of its issues, you're likely going to be pulled back and forth between pop culture and kingdom culture. What's popular and how God wants me to live. And that's a not a good place to be. It's an uncomfortable place to be. And so as Christians, we need to be constantly evaluating our investments in the surrounding culture. Like we invest, like we evaluate our retirement portfolios. 
so that we don't conform to its image, losing our hope, our value, and our identities to it. We can't get caught up in letting our ideals, our ideas of success, what good children are supposed to look like, our faith, our beliefs be molded by the world. Paul's serious about this because he knows our minds have a direct influence on our process of transformation, meaning that spiritual transformation begins in asking God to encounter you in the faculty of your mind. Look, the truth is you could come to church, you could get baptized, you could join Rooted, you could say a prayer, you could raise your hand during an altar call, and the pastor could even say, I see your hand. You could, and still never, ever, ever be changed. But if you encounter Jesus, you have a gospel reality where you actually encounter the Holy Spirit, especially in the faculty of your mind, you will be changed because no one encounters Jesus, no one encounters the Holy Spirit and remains the same. You will be transformed if you surrender to him there. This, uh, this last week I was spending uh, Thanksgiving with my in-laws. And one, um, one morning I, I told Connie what I was going to be sharing with you guys this weekend. And she shared with me um, a story of how growing up, she always felt some pressure around this verse, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, specifically around the word transform. Because it was taught that it demanded a sense of arrival, like fully transformed now. And that once you become a Christian, you had to become perfect, no longer struggling with life <laughs> and the hustle and bustles of life healed of all your addictions, and almost directed now with a divine sense of guidance in all your future endeavors, right? And she was so wise in sharing this with me because I can imagine that there are maybe many of us here today who kind of maybe feel like frauds. I mean, yeah, like, I feel like a fraud in my faith. I'm a Christian fraud. And we've done the Romans chapter 10, verse 8, I confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believe in your heart that God had risen from the dead and you'll be saved. But there's still something like, I, I want you to know that, that you're not a fraud, you struggle with questions like in Romans 7, Paul himself. Why do I do what I know I should not do when I know what I should do time and time and time and time again? Why do I, in my relationship with God, and as I practice my relationship with God out in the real world, have no sense of arrival? Why do I still struggle with insert whatever it is? Why am I not completely and wholly transformed? And the answer to these questions are simple. It's because you are in a process. But it's important for you to know that you're no fraud. You're just simply in a process. Martin Luther had a term to describe this reality. We are simulusus et peccator. We are simultaneously sinner and saint. This is this juxtaposition between our standing before God and how we actually live in some cases. Where we're a sinner, practically, like I, I still sin, I'm not perfect, but yet in God's eyes I'm, a, I'm considered a saint now because of what Christ has done on the cross. His righteous standing with God has been accredited, gifted, deposited into our account. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he who knew no sin became sin, so that you, I, we may become the righteousness of God. And so we're in this weird place where we, may, we need to disown our sin and own it simultaneously. Own it in respects of going, I'm a sinner and I need, I need forgiveness. I need to repent. Disown it is saying, I need to live a different life. And look, here's what this means. What this means is this side of heaven, there is no sense of arrival. All there is, is a process of giving God more and more and more of yourself daily like a living sacrifice. Look, the truth is, I will not be who I will be when I meet Jesus face to face one day, but I should not be who I first was when I met him many years ago. There should be some form of progression, not perfection. See, God got perfection in his son, Jesus Christ. What he asks for you and me is progression. Are you more like him today than you were when you first joined Rooted, got baptized, said yes? The answer to that question is yes, and you're doing what's asked of you. When Chelsea and I were uh, teaching our daughter, Noelle, how to walk, um, it was a process. <laughs> and if you've done it before, you know it's a process. 
Can you imagine one day, let's say you saw me like somewhere at a local park or maybe it was on our campus somewhere and you saw me teaching her, you know, how to, how to walk. And you saw that, you know, she got distracted, fell to her knee, a butterfly flew by, whatever it was. And you saw me kind of developing, like, you started, I started yelling at her for wobbling and falling on her knees. Like, how wrong of that would that be? That'd be wrong of me. That I developed some type of, let's say, anger because her growth pattern wasn't at the accelerated rate that I deemed was appropriate, right? I'd never do that. As she's learning to walk with her father, because I am her father, I'm patient with her in that process. What makes you think God the Father is any different? That when you and when I and when we become born again, you enter into this new process of walking with your heavenly Father daily. And look, truth be told, yeah, the world has tons of shiny things. You're going to wobble. You're going to fall. But don't stay there. Because in Christ, you can always get back up. So at the end today, there's just a few things I want you to know. Number one, I want you to know the same God that saves you is the same God that sanctifies you. You just got to hold on. The next thing I want you to know is all our job is, is to surrender. So what do you need to place in his hands today? <laughs> What's your coconut? What do you need to surrender to him and say, God, I give you all that I am for all that you are? Let's pray. Father, today I... Uh, when, did the, uh, when did your church become a museum for perfect people, not a hospital where people are broken? Father, I ask that you would help us be cognizant of the areas of our lives in which... We've yet to give over to you and humbly admit, God, that we are imperfect, but we worship a perfect God. So, Father, I ask that, yeah, help us identify what our coconut is, the thing, God, that we are holding on to that's literally leading to our enslavement. And when you continue to spur us on in faith, help us live like a living sacrifice. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.